Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Tiffany here from Swish, and I want to talk about being a problem solver. In my classroom, I'm always telling my equal firsties to be problem solvers. In first grade, that's one thing, but in adult life, it's a whole other. It can be really difficult to train your brain to go into a problem-solving mode. Maybe you don't even know where to start. It's a challenge that we all face in life. But when you learn to better help your brain find solutions, it's truly a great feeling. And if you've ever been thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. BetterHelp is convenient, it's accessible, it's affordable, and it's all online. And on top of that, they match you with a therapist just by filling out a brief survey. So when you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com swish today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash swish. Welcome to Swish and Flick, an all-Potter podcast. Swish and Flick, everyone. The Swish and Flick. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Swish and Flick. I'm Tiffany. I'm Megan. I'm Katie. I'm Sarah. And we are joined again by a very special guest host, Vanessa from the Don't Call Me Crazy podcast. Welcome again. Hello, everybody. <laughs> we appreciate you coming back um, for part two of our um, mental health and lack thereof in the wizarding world. So <laughs> today we are going to start with the one and only Katie up first. I Ooh. hope you can handle it. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I I'm usually way down on the on the totem pole here. So I'm just oh. I think you actually have my favorite section, Katie. So I'm, I, th- I, I do it justice. That's all I'm saying. I was just gonna say pressure. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> no, I can't, Meg. You go first. No, no. Um, all right, Katie. Let's go. Well, that being said, if you want to add anything that I didn't add, please, please interrupt me. But so we're gonna start off talking about the spell and potion sort of equivalent to the muggle world's approach and medicinal sort of way of dealing with mental health. Sure. So before we get into this, though, as I was doing research and looking over this and thinking about it, um, the wizarding world does acknowledge mental health, I believe, because we've talked about that before. Like, do they even think it's a real thing (laughs) like do they do anything with it um i do think they acknowledge it there are potions there are charms which we'll we'll talk about but everything seems to be medicinal and only medicinal so like where is the therapy i think that's what the problem is um Mm -hmm. because they have a lot of band-aids yes medicinal slaps (laughs) a band-aid on it right i take medication for my mental health yes it does help But it doesn't, you know, snap your fingers, you swallow a pill and you're cured. There's a lot more work that goes into it. And that's through therapy and support and on and on and on. Um, So I just think that's important to point out. And that's going to be a recurring theme as I go through my section. Um, So to start, uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes. My mental health expert over there. (laughs) Yes. Good Um, job. (laughs) So how could the muggle, or not the muggle world, how could the wizarding world approach that? So maybe with a pensieve, 
upon seed to remove memories like maybe lessen their intensity because we know that when you pull it out of your head and you put it in the silver bowl it doesn't go away it just kind of like becomes less foggy or more foggy in your brain not so much intense i believe if i'm saying that correctly yes tiffany having you said that it makes me think that i wonder you know when you use the sieve, if you can view something from a different angle you know what i mean like a different way of looking at something that has happened to you and i wonder if that could help you um heal because you're able to view it from a different perspective yeah that's really interesting And I mean, to add to that too, Tiffany, something that they often do in therapy is uh, kind of telling your own story, right? So being able to actually view that memory um, might actually help remove you from the, uh, maybe from the emotions that you were feeling and see it more from an outsider perspective. I like that a lot. I like that a lot because sometimes I feel um, when people get into even... Uh, any kind of like verbal altercation, like you know what you're feeling and sometimes the way that you're feeling affects the way that you view how someone's like speaking to you Mm. or trying to explain something to you. And maybe they're coming off in a way that they think is like, you know, trying to help the situation and you view it maybe as you're being attacked or something. This is just an example. So Mm -hmm. I like that you could like see you know, maybe what was actually going on rather than just what you're feeling as a reaction to that other person. I like that a lot. Ooh. It like forces <laughs> you to step away. Yeah. And look at it from another angle, just like you said. Uh-huh. And it's away from that actual moment. So you might either have had the chance to like pull off or mm-hmm. assess it another way. I like that. Yeah. Um, the Wizarding World also has the Dreamless Sleep Potion. I think this is one of those quick remedies because that's obviously not going to stop your post-traumatic stress. They give it to Harry quite a few times, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, definitely after, at the end of four, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there's at least two other times. I can't really remember right Which- now, but... Which, like, did Harry need to sleep then? Yes. Yeah, yeah he, he was to, like, exhausted. Chill out. But no one ever, as we're talking, we're in Order of the Phoenix right now, as we're talking, no one is giving him that mental care that he needs so bad. Honestly, yeah. yeah. So badly. Especially in this one. Especially mm-hmm. after this one. Yeah. Um, but, you know, something that Harry shows a lot of is that PTSD um, symptom of having nightmares of things that have happened to him before. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, you know, tell me if I'm wrong. You guys are the experts on this. But <laughs> doesn't he have nightmares of Cedric quite yeah. a few times? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is such like a, that's like a flashback. That's like a yeah. flashback nightmare, mm-hmm. you know? I mean. Um, and Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. Just, just you know, medicine can only do so much. Right, right. Harry has those nightmares about Cedric all the way through Cursed Child. I mean, mm-hmm. like, it it stays with them, I'm pretty sure, for life. I mean, that was pretty, probably the single most traumatic thing, first traumatic thing he could really remember. I know he sees flashes of green light from his parents, but, like, his own fully formed memory. Um, another way that we could combat this, or the Wizarding World would combat this is maybe Occlumency, which is kind of funny because we're talking about that right now. Um, 
could this be like a version of closing your mind to push away bad memories or trauma, like a way to protect yourself? It might, I could see this again as not being fully healthy, but maybe if you used it in the right way, like intrusive thoughts or yeah, I guess with PTSD, like, oh my God, I, you know, maybe I shouldn't think about that right now. Just trying to like control it more. I don't know. Um, for depression, we have cheering charms, of course, and <laughs> chocolate, obviously. But again, those are just <laughs> quick fixes. Yeah. Um, for anxiety, it's, go ahead. It's just like I just. I was just there were say, it's two just, hands. It's just so weird <laughs> that, like, for depression, all they have is a cheering charm or to eat chocolate when, like. It is really a chemical imbalance in your brain. Like, right. it's not just, like, I'm sad today. <laughs> I have depression. You know what I mean? Like, it's so much more than that. And, like, their Band-Aid fix literally makes it seem like they view depression as, I'm having a bad day. Also, do you think chocolate works differently in the wizarding world or on wizard bodies? Or is it different chocolate? Because, it, I mean... It's got to. It's got to be. Gotta yeah. do a little bit more because I mean, Sarah. I don't know. It's <laughs> I mean, I would think it's the same, but like I'm not. I don't know. I don't know. It's chocolate, whatever. There's <laughs> people that really like it and eating a piece of it. Truly, there's studies. I think there's studies out there that like dark chocolate does is helpful to people. Mm-hmm. I don't really like chocolate a ton, so I, I'm not like a chocolate. Give me a bag of potato chips. Let's go. I'm, I'm a French fry kind of guy. <laughs> Reasons yeah, why some salt, some fat. Yeah. yeah. Chocolate genuinely helps me with, like, headaches or something. No, I have other things to do when I have a headache. <laughs> Chocolate um, helps my me when I'm hungry. <laughs> I mean, I like chocolate. I just don't. I, I know that there's people in my life that, like, eat it. When they are like feeling sad, like they're like, you know what I mean? Mm, or if they're yeah. having like a rough week. I, that's just not me, which is fine, but everyone's different. Yeah. I also think like when these books were written, did people talk about their depression? No. Mm. So, like, were there that many like talked about um, things in the real world? I mean, there were obviously, there has been like medicine and therapy for years, but people didn't talk about it. So, like, oh, yeah. maybe it's for her. Hush, hush. Yes. Yeah. And this I'm saying, like, we don't know. I don't think they did anything in the Wizarding World, but mm. it's more than cherry charms and chocolate. Chocolate. Yeah. Chocolate. Show. Um, maybe chocolate is, I don't really think it is, like, because they really do talk about it a lot, but maybe it's sort of a symbol for, like, something that comforts you. Like, if I'm having a really stressed out day, mm. at the end of the day, I kind of just, like, want a really nice hot cup of tea and, like, just to chill. And, like, that mm. calms me down. Um, another topic that we're really well versed on is anxiety. We've talked about that mm. many, many times over None many of us episodes. Have that. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have the drought of peace, which literally is to relieve anxiety and agitation. Um, but that's only going to do so much. Yes. Is the draught, Is there a relation between the drought of peace and the drought of living death? Ooh. I think that the, I don't know. I think I also think it's draft. It is. Yeah. I yeah. think No, it's okay. Somebody I didn't know that originally. I cannot take credit for this knowledge. Somebody was like, it's draft. And I was like, Oogie. 
the draft of living death is um it sends you into a death like slumber like we're talking sleeping beauty style yeah this is sleeping beauty but you don't do, need do, a kiss. I was going to say, do, how do you wake up? Do you get a <laughs> true love's kiss? I don't know. It's Give me a mighty. And peace is literally, yeah. it's known I think it for just relieving brings anxiety. You peace. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, I wonder if they have similar ingredients. <clears throat> Probably. Standard potioning water is in uh, the living peace one. Living death. What is it? The that? living peace. <laughs> <laughs> I would I like would living hope. peace, please. Infusion of wormwood. Draft of peace. Frog's draft breath. of living Getting death. Out of that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would hope that they There's would use Valerian the words. Both That's of what's them. similar. The first yeah. two words. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Sloth brain would, is in. wouldn't use that as like a medication style and it would just be for like, you know, major panic attacks or... Something that Harry went through, you know, just so you can calm down enough to, like, assess the situation, figure it out. Um, maybe Felix Felicis, which I can never say right, and I hope I did. Because we see Harry trick Ron with this, right? He Ron is so, so nervous to play that Quidditch game. And Harry makes him think that he drank that liquid luck. <laughs> but he didn't. Yeah. And then I was wondering if maybe a Bogart could be used as some sort of of exposure therapy which we kind of see with mm. harry I mean, that's like his that's his mm. big fear and i know that he needed to see it in order to learn how like a spell to fight it but still i mean that was him conquering his fear every time they opened that trunk i like true. that um i think there is a lot of addiction in the wizarding world um again i'm gonna bring up felix Felicis because if you had that at your disposal I know it's difficult to brew, but like, say you're say you're Slughorn, you're really good at brewing things. Or Snape, like, can't can too much the... of that hurt you though? Well, that's that's an addiction. Too much of anything can hurt no, you. No, I know that, but like, in a, a physical way. That's Some what people... I'm. But there are things that people yeah, are addicted that, yeah. to that, in a physical way, too much of it will hurt you. Yeah, I mean, highly like... toxic and can cause extreme recklessness. So that's what I meant. Is like a secondary. But if people, like, if they get off that, like, on that high of it, like, oh, my God. They're not going to care about Mm -hmm. the side effects. They're They're just just going to keep doing it. Looking for the next. Yeah. Like, how do I feel that way again? Um, I was wondering if there's any kind of. They're chasing that donut high. Yes. (laughs) Bro. (laughs) Bro. Uh, Do you guys think there's any, underground magical creature fighting or breeding? As far as gambling goes, like I mean, well, we see that with Hagrid. um, As far as like magical trade with animals goes, magical trade, guys, magical trade. (laughs) I'm sure there is magical beast trade um, with the the, black mark with the the black magic market. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes. Um, Unfortunately, I think yes. And Newt has rescued creatures too, right? He said that Frank was Mm -hmm. somewhere, the Thunderbird. And he rescued him. And I think of the speakeasies too with like gambling with mm-hmm. um, Fantastic mm. Beasts. I'm sure that there was gambling going you on. You bring this up with um, the twins and uh, what's yeah. his face? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Ludo what's his name? Has a gambling addiction. Ludo Bagman. For sure. Ludo. Yeah. I mean, Ludo and he was even like drives him trading to the ground because of the gambling Leprechaun addiction. gold. Yeah. And I got to feel that, like, I think he he uses, uses the leprechaun gold of peop- on people who, like, don't 
know better already. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like the twins were pretty young and unknowing until it was gone. And then they figured it out. But also like maybe people who aren't really like well-versed in the gambling field mm-hmm. or like don't understand. And he takes advantage of them that way. Well, I oh, think when you Ludo. have an addiction, you're willing to do whatever it takes to to mm-hmm. feed it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So Well, and even too, I mean, there are, we're talking about, things you don't necessarily need in your life, right? Like gambling mm-hmm. or Felix Felicis. But then there are the addictions of the things you need in life. Like, mm. is there a mag- is there an addiction to magic? Is there an addiction to, like, black magic? Is there... Mm. I mean, these are kind mm. of, like, Voldemort. things we don't really hear about, you mm-hmm. know, but... Or is can there be an addiction to power? Because I would definitely say oh, Voldemort absolutely. has that. Oh, yeah. Voldemort, yeah. Yeah. Voldemort had an addiction to making himself it too. immortal. Right. I mean, making that many horcruxes, which is crazy unsafe. And- I, I think it, I wouldn't say immortal. Like, obviously, we know he does. But, like, again, I think it just boils down to he wants all of the power. Yeah. Like, I think that's what his... Well, he was a, obsessed with immortality, though. I'm not saying he wasn't. I'm just saying immortality so he could be, like... He wants best, to be number one. Yes. Yeah. Like he wants all the power and being immortal would be like, I'm so powerful because I literally never going to die. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, think Dumbledore that- is a good, is a good representation of someone that he even himself has admits. Like I can't handle that because I'm going to want more. You know what I mean? So he, if you would say like, he's like a recovering addict to power. Yeah. Basically. Well, like, I do agree that Voldemort is obsessed with power, obviously, but it is um, it is quoted multiple times that he just wants to conquer death. That is his, like, primary his, mm-hmm. obsession. Yeah. Sometimes over other things. Yeah. Yeah. And yet he was so much younger than Dumbledore before he died. Right? Mm-hmm. See so what a just, you know, stuck to the normal path. <laughs> what a dummy. <laughs> Um, so also like Felix, there's also an elixir called um, an elixir to induce euphoria. So it's a potion that in- induces a sense of inexplicable, irrational happiness upon the drinker. So I guess I could go along with depression too. Like say someone's just depressed, they find this, they use that instead. But it's, you know, it's just not going to be the same as talking it through and actually working through the problem. It's just another band-aid. And then maybe uh, strengthening strengthening solutions could be related to, like, steroids. There's some really buff wizards out there, maybe. You know (laughs) that they experiment with that kind of stuff a thousand percent. Right. And then we have Winky, too, who clearly needed some sort of help. She had an addiction to butterbeer, so she needed some sort (laughs) Mm -hmm. of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't mean to laugh. It's just so funny to, like, hear somebody say, I was addicted to butterbeer when it has such, like, a low alcohol content, but she's such a tiny being that, like, to her, it was, like, us probably drinking, like, a mixed drink. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, she was was drinking a lot. lot. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure the amount that she was drinking would even, like, maybe affect, like, a somebody maybe Hermione's size or something like that because she like bottles and bottles and bottles and bottles and that obviously will add up yeah how did she not have to pee so much she probably did magic yeah and literally they used to magic it away yeah (laughs) we don't know that she didn't megan (laughs) we don't know (laughs) so this next one is kind of um like a wizard to muggle instead so, like, we know wizards have love potions. 
Um, mm. So I was thinking of ancient rituals in the Muggle world. If anyone's seen like Midsummer, yeah. If anyone's oh seen Midsummer, I do not recommend. It'll scare the living daylights that out of you. That movie is. Oh, I don't know what that is. Don't just don't it's ever so look. Messed. Don't ever look. I won't. Um, but I looked up. I like, but it's actually bands. it's like based on this like ancient. There's, there's they do these like ancient rituals for like having a child. It is very. It's yeah, disturbing. So I found a tame one. Okay, because yeah. a lot of these sound like this. So it'll be like, and this is a quote from um, theconversation.com. So this ritual was take the fragment of the tip of your fingernail and apple seed together with blood from your finger. Pound the apple, add the blood, put in a cup of wine, recite the given spell seven times over, and then you should make the woman drink it at a special time. And apparently that'll make her... Your fingernail, it. right? Let me just say that, and is your blood, so tame, right? Super tame compared to some of the stuff <laughs> we watched in Midsummer. So tame, <laughs> <laughs> so scary. Um, and then I wanted to—I know nothing about these things, but as a whatever, parallel, Kate, whatever, maybe, Kate, maybe Tinder, Bumble, eHarmony. I don't know. There's you put things in Farmers it, only. and then they match you to people. Love potion in your phone, right? <laughs> or if you're getting catfished, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. you're lying I mean, to someone. Yeah. You don't necessarily put your traits. You'd put whatever you want in your profile. Use caution. <laughs> okay. I just you you do like some like. If you're looking at like eHarmony, you have to like pay for a subscription or whatever. I think um, in order to use majority of their features, but like that one's a little bit more detailed, where they're going to ask you questions, ask you what you like, ask you what your how your family might, what are traits, whatever, and then like Tinder and Bumble are a little bit less, like they're a little more pared down, and they're going to ask you like obviously everyone's going to ask you like. Um, like what your age, like what you're into, like ASL. So like if you're a woman looking for a man or you're looking for whatever, you know what I mean? Or vice versa. Um, and then like some have nothing in their profile. Some have a bunch of stuff. It just depends. Like you could put some of them, you could put like your Instagram handle. So you can just look at their Instagram or um, like what music they're listening to, like on Spotify and stuff. And then they, like, some people literally put, like, a little blurb about themselves. Some people don't. Put where they work. Some people don't. Just depends. Do you think they have dating websites or not websites, but anything like that in the wizarding world? Or does I would everyone like to just think meet at Hogwarts? Speed dating would be great. <laughs> like, meet yeah. at the Three Broomsticks for speed dating night. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I'm Rose Murdo would totally throw that. Totally. <laughs> All right. And then my last, um, my last point is the werewolf stigma. So like groups and treatment and that sort of thing. Um, of course I have to talk about my dude, right? So yeah, you um, do. the author quotes Lupin's condition of lycanthropy was a metaphor for those illnesses that carry a stigma like, like HIV and AIDS. All kinds of superstitions seem to surround bloodborne conditions, probably due to taboos surrounding blood itself. The wizarding community is as prone to hysteria and prejudice as the muggle one and the character of Lupin gave me a chance to examine these attitudes. So I looked up treatment for both of them. So werewolf treatment, there is no cure. Um, but some of the worst effects can be taken away by taking the wolf's potion. So then you just, became, mm-hmm. you just become a regular wolf with your mind. 
um, so you're not a harm to others. Uh, it's very difficult to make that potion. Um, there's a lot of complicated ingredients. And the high cost of the ingredients makes it pretty much impossible for werewolves to buy it. Um, so most are poor. They can't taste the potion without revealing what they are, obviously. Even if they did have the money, then that shows their status in the world. Um, with HIV and AIDS, the treatment is called anti-retroviral... Viral, retro, retroviral. Uh, and it involves taking a combination of HIV medicines every day. Um, it's recommended for everyone who has HIV, and the main goal is to reduce the person's viral load to an undetectable level. So I kind of see, like, even in the treatment, I see like a correlation. Just yeah, kind you of just interesting. Lessen, you reduce, yeah, the level. Yeah. I do wonder too, like you know, many. You take the antiretroviral drugs um, because the less of the load you have in your system, um, the less likely you are to for your immune system to drop and the less likely you are to get sick from other things, right? I wonder if there's a similar thing with werewolves. Like, you know that they are super strong, but lupin looks like prematurely aged, right? Does it shorten yeah. the lifespan? Like... Does that, is there like a, mm. like a shortening of your life? I've always wondered that because they mm. always kind of describe Lupin. I mean, not only is he scarred from right. damaging himself, but he had like graying hair. He looked mm-hmm. kind of prematurely Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So I, I wonder yeah. if it shortens your life. I, I would say yes. I would say the yeah. author the shortened his life. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> That's <laughs> too soon. Sorry, I everyone. Do, I do think too that this comparison, though, like for so long there there was no treatment for HIV or AIDS, though, as well. So, like, I think that also is like the direct correlation between werewolf treatment and HIV/AIDS treatment. Whereas, mm-hmm. like now, um, you know, you can live an almost normal life while being right. HIV positive um, and there's more of an understanding around it people don't think just because you're in the same room as them that they're gonna get it well i've seen it happen where people have freaked out when they found out that a patient was hiv positive it's a, like it's within the stigma, last couple man. of years and yeah. i i feel bad and i've honestly felt that way like when when um like covid started happening because obviously i work in a hospital um and like i was with the patient that was being tested I was gowned up, like I was in all the protective gear, but like he needed help with his phone. So I was like, clo- within six feet of him, mm. I'm covered in everything. So I'm like, mm-hmm. and the doctor came in to talk to him and he looked at me like I was crazy. I'm like, I'm not going to not help this patient with their phone. I'm like, I, that's just not my mentality. I understand at that point. I mean, still, it's, everything's unknown, but like, I'm, I'm here to do my job and my job is to help a patient. Mm-hmm. Um, but he ended up not having it, which was good. But like, even having patients that were like HIV, I'm like, well, I hope you don't spit on me or do something. Like, I'm not worried about it. Like the one, I just felt bad. Like she, yeah. she's like, no one has come in here for like hours. And I'm like, well, just tell me what you need. Like, I just feel bad. Like there's nothing wrong with you. Just take the proper precautions, but don't flip out about well, it. Well, I mean, and there's a thing called universal precautions is what you're supposed to do with everybody. Correct. So. I mean, even with people like, I mean, obviously you don't know people's health say if somebody gets hurt on the side of the road, like... Right. You're not, right, right. Pe- pe- when I take uh, 
CPR classes, like they give you this little thing just in case you have to give somebody like mouth to mouth. You put mm. it over them and you breathe through like this yeah, ventish thing. So, you know, you're you're protecting yourself. Number one thing, even at work, when we go over like our trainings for like general like first aid stuff, like the first thing they tell you is you have to put on gloves no matter what because you just you don't know. So that's yeah. it's that kind of stuff that's fine. But being in the same vicinity as someone, I feel like back in the day, it was like if you knew somebody had like HIV or AIDS, just being in the same room as them, people were flipping out. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't they didn't know anything about it. You know yeah, what I mean? they didn't know how um, people got it, and they just made like assumptions. And you know, Very there are unknown. stories of of like yeah. young people dying alone in a hospital room where like they wouldn't even bring the food into the rooms with them. Um, and I, I don't, to me, like, that's just horrendous. And I get it. Like, I get that people are scared. Um, but it's good. That, I, yeah, I know for know me, more. I'm here to do my job and I'm here to take care of people. So like that, that's not something I would have ever done. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm not judging other people, but Vanessa. And even to like, kind of bring it back to mental health, it can be very isolating for people. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. where things like, you know, um, groups and group therapy and support groups are really important for people who are suffering from these kind of very stigmatizing yeah. illnesses. And mm-hmm. they have it within the HIV community, but they don't have anything like that within the lycanthropy community. And even then, it, it's actually, I think there was a registry, but that was yeah. with the um government and no one wants to mm-hmm. register with the government so no yeah it's exactly yeah. what i was gonna say yeah yeah it's sad like we need and we need to break that and like i mean obviously we're talking about the wizarding world but in our own world too like that's not fair that someone can't go get help when something is set up for them to have help but they can't right. do it because it's quote-unquote shaming them mm-hmm. mm. so in their mind it's like yeah. what's worse do I go and become publicly labeled as this or do I just try and fend for myself? I do think too, that like um, some things that have helped at least in like the current times, people like Jonathan Van Ness who have this following um, have this platform and he is not scared to, I mean, I'm sure that he was scared, but he had the courage to come out and put in his memoir um, that he's HIV positive and have these conversations on his podcast that he hosts and just like be a figure for people that they can look up to and say, look, Jonathan Van Ness did this. Look at how courageous he is. If he did it, maybe so can I, you know, or um, oh, there was something else I was going to say and now I lost it. But but well, yeah, so he's like. like- Shout out to him for, like, having the courage to, like, be that role model for people. Right. Because he's this figure mm-hmm. that a lot of people love. I absolutely mm-hmm. adore him. And then you read his book and you're like, oh, he's HIV positive. Like, and for HIV someone who positive, might... non-binary, like... Well, for someone who might have a fear of that, they might go, but I love him. But he's this. But... Uh, and then that opens up the conversation and the thought of being, like oh, maybe what I have thought about X, Y, or Z is wrong and I need to open my brain about it. Also, my bad. I believe his pronouns are they, them. Their pronouns are they, them. So, sorry about that. But 
JVN is queen. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Queen. Absolutely. Uh. <laughs> um, is it my turn? Yes, ma'am. I have a lot. Bring it on. So, you don't say. Um, so this hit her up first. I have to move this. Thank you. <laughs> that annoyed me. <laughs> and their mental health. Um, so first up is Harry. Obviously, he is going to have the most examples out of anybody um, because we know the most about him. Um, so his childhood with the Dursleys, he's never allowed to ask questions. He's kept in the dark and lied to about his family. He's locked in his bedroom um, between Bed school room. years. Making no noise or pretending he doesn't exist. Yes. He's not allowed to study um, or do his homework over holidays. He has... They put bars on his window. Literal bars on his window. He's given less food than Dudley. (laughs) (laughs) He's treated, obviously, different from Dudley. Um, Straight in front of his face. Like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So just, like, the way that they treat him... In all honesty, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, like, it makes me surprised that he didn't become an obscurist. Like, he's yeah. he's just, like, meant to hold everything in. He is crushed, basically. Like, he's just not allowed to be himself. He doesn't know anything about his family history besides the lies that he's been told. So he's kind of just, like, set up to... Um, honestly like be more prone to these mental health issues I think because of his upbringing from the Dursleys Um, so he's coming to Hogwarts friendless but even though he's friendless he's so grateful even just as an 11 year old he feels like an outcast but he he doesn't know anything about the wizarding world but he's so grateful to have Ron as a friend to eventually have Hermione as a friend um, to have Molly and Arthur as like second parents um He discovers his fame and has to deal with instant popularity and what that does to him. And he has expectations already in place that he didn't know anything about. Uh, The whole world, quote, world, knows everything about him and he knows nothing about the world. So that can be super isolating, Um, which, again, is another reason why he's so grateful to have Ron, I think, as a friend and to have that one outlet where he can always go to Ron and ask him questions or have Hermione tell him things all the time. (laughs) And also for Ron, so he's a little starstruck at first, but he honestly, he doesn't treat Harry like Harry's this, like, kid on a pedestal. You know what I mean? They're just friends. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I really like that. Someone recently pointed out, I think on Facebook, um, and I think it's from Chamber of Secrets when they're going to use the flu powder, and obviously Harry, like, knows nothing about it. Mm -hmm. Ron's like, oh, shoot, like, I should have remembered, like, blah, 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 and, like, tells him about it instead of, like, getting, like, man, like, oh, I can't believe you don't know. He's like, oh, I should have remembered that you you wouldn't know about this. Yeah. You know, where I think Mm -hmm. it's, like, a great friend moment. Yes. Well, and two, I think that, I mean, 11 years old is an interesting age because you're still kind of a child, mm-hmm. um, but Very you're much just so. starting to be a, you know, starting to get airs about you. I feel like, 11, <laughs> like 12, 13, like that's when you start to feel like a teenager and you start 12, to like, man. Yeah. 12. Yeah. Those preteens are <laughs> interesting. They're rough. Um, <laughs> and I, I, 
work with children, um, as does Tiffany, um, and Tiffany can add to this too, but I feel like 11, 10, 9, they're still like, they're still childlike. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably a good thing because I think if Harry had been any older, he probably would have been a lot, I don't know, he probably would have had a lot more armor than he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, cause he came to Hogwarts just ready to like for this new world, you mm-hmm. know, he was fully ready to embrace his new life mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. sure. Fully ready. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're such a rookie. Is there, I was going to say, is there, <laughs> sorry, was this is there an alarm, alarm or something? I'm sorry. There's no way I was going to remember it. <laughs> um, so in the second book. On top of the fact that he already feels as an outcast because he doesn't know as much. He knows a little bit more coming into um, year two. But he's outcast again um, because of the whole school turning on him. After being a hero in at the end of one, he now has to deal with the fact that the school thinks that he is the cause of all of these attacks, even though he isn't. Um, and trying to you know, figure out why he's hearing voices and having his best friend tell him, even in the wizarding world, like, that's not normal. That's when you knew, man. That's when you knew you're like, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, Like, I mean, that like Harry goes through that and has literally nobody to go and talk to about it because he feels as if he can't because his friend is like, that's not normal. And Harry already feels as if he's not normal and he doesn't want to feel it even more. Does Ron say that? It's not, I think it's Ron in the book. Yeah, I think it's Hermione a Ron line that they gave to Hermione. Yeah. Right. They gave all but the good lines to Hermione. Think mm-hmm. of that, though, for Harry from Ron. Ron is his Wizarding World connection, knows it all, grew up in and it. He's probably thinking, you're like, telling me this? Oh, you're going to give me some relief here. Right. Wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. For a 12 year old. I d- this is totally kind of an aside, but I do wish that they had done a little bit more with the parcel tongue because other than it being, I mean, other than it being something that was very important in this book, I don't really think it ever comes up that much again. Well, it, Horcrux, right? Right. So it was, so Harry used parcel tongue to open the Horcrux and then Ron copied him and to go back into the, the chamber to get the basilisk fangs. To destroy yes. the cup. He has hassled that right on open. He did. Um, I also think it's funny that you can like imitate parcel yeah. tongue. <laughs> that well. Like I, you would think that there would be like another step to it. No. Like no sounds matter. that only parcel tongue people can make. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I just, you just think it would be more than well, just repeating a sound. Maybe like open sesame is just easier to say in parcel tongue than like. Open sesame seeds. Sure. I was going to say like, <laughs> where's the coffee? I don't know. What? What's like a difficult thing to say in another language? Hello. <laughs> hey, hola, My name hola. is. Me amo. I have a funny language story, but I don't want to. <laughs> so, okay, quick. I'll try to make this a quick story time. I was in Hungary. <laughs> And I was learning Hungarian, and I was staying with a Romanian family, so they didn't speak English, I didn't speak Romanian, 
they knew a little bit of Hungarian. I knew a little bit of Hungarian. So we really wanted to milk the cows the next morning. We wanted to help them around the farm. It was a farm we were staying on. And so I thought I had asked them to help to milk the cows. They asked me what time, and I said, oh, what time works for you? They said 4 a.m. Good. We all woke up at 4 a.m. They had milked the cows early so that we could have fresh milk because they thought we were demanding that they give us fresh milk in the morning. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Instead oh, of helping them uh, around the farm. So, yeah, I mean, language is a difficult thing. Yeah. I feel like uh, parcel tongue should not be that easy to learn or say something in after hearing it once, like, four books ago. <laughs> Bless yeah. that family. Hey, that's like a little uh, thing to Ron being not dumb. No. <laughs> he pays attention. Yeah. yeah. I agree with that. Did you see uh, Vinny in the chat said that Ron copying Harry was some plot gymnastics? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. Um, so, so, yeah. And then on top of the fact that he is hearing this weird snake voice, he also has to deal with the near death of Ginny and going to find her body and having to defeat Voldemort again at age 12, even though it was a yeah, memory. Still very much manipulated by Voldemort, um, has to fight a basilisk and save his best friend's little sister. He's got to save Ginny Weasley from the basilisk. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good song. Uh, then in Prisoner of Azkaban, we get to meet the Dementors and learn about Expecto Patronum, and Harry's got some nightmares going on. So Harry hears his parents' final moments every time a Dementor is near, and the fact that they're required to be around the school has to be incredibly mentally draining for him. Um, the fact that he never knows when he might be affected by them and have to hear that moment again. And think about how, like, he's in his, like, comfort zone on a Quidditch pitch, right? Right. Here they come. So then, like, maybe in the back of your mind, you're like, are they just going to come out at any point? Like, do am I ever safe from these things? I just, like, feel so bad for him because he he has this kind of fairy tale first year in a way. I mean, yes, he does have to go down, like, (laughs) but if you, like, if you... He has until October 31st of his first year of school before poop hits the fan. <laughs> I mean, when there's yeah, a troll but like, in the dungeon. If you, if you take the entire series, like a troll wandering around the school is like a piece of cake. Which I he mean, really didn't have to deal with any of the stuff in the first book. He just kind of chose to. Well, but what right, I'm saying right. is like by the end of that book, he's a hero. Like he yeah. in at the at the end of that book. In his eyes, like, Hogwarts is his home. He loves it. He can't wait to come back. Yeah, of course, like, stuff went down because it's Harry Potter. But, like, at the end of the day, when you compare it to all of the other books, that was a Why pretty darn good year. Three? I'll give it to you. <laughs> like, that was a pretty I'll darn let good you, year. I'll let you say Sorcerer's Stone is a fairy tale. It is. It's I, fairy I tale totally, I'll allow it. Allow it. Um, wow. So then, you know, Chamber of Secrets, he's hearing voices, 
and he just like wants to come back to his happy place but of course it's like turned into this nightmare now because he's constantly being blamed for these people getting petrified and now and third year comes it. around and like well and nobody murders. writes to him right because dobby steals all his letters right yeah and so he, like, that whole summer he's one, isolated still yeah. at the end it's of one he's like oh my gosh i made all these friends and then by the beginning of two he's like did i make all these friends did i make it all up was it was all dream? fake yeah all oh, sad harry so then three comes around and like somebody's out to murder him apparently he has these dementors that are all around the school that are just like sucking the happiness out of his happy place um but a shining moment of three is that he does get to meet one of his parents best friends woo, 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 woo. the coolest teacher ever don't you mean um, woo, woo, woo. <laughs> <laughs> and and gets to learn expecto patronum but while doing that like the mental toll that that takes on him in the process of learning expecto patronum um like while it ends up being a really great thing that he learns it it's still very draining mm. um so nightmares he has quite a few in prisoner of azkaban um I don't want to like <laughs> what <laughs> the way you said so nightmares. <laughs> well, I feel like it's just like this recurring theme after this point, but I just feel so bad. <laughs> I feel bad. Let's for talk Harry. about nightmares, baby. <laughs> um, but honestly, yes, nightmares yeah. and visions and whatnot, seeing so, and seeing of the current. Yeah. <laughs> the discord chat talking about him killing a teacher his first year and they're like i mean doesn't everyone do that their first year <laughs> i'm glad i'm still around you know? no but yeah no he kills squirrel essentially well, well his squirrel birthday was just the and that was his best year that was his best year, <laughs> best year! <laughs> that was his best murdered year. jeez the bang. gosh <laughs> what a fairy tale of a year <laughs> Tiffany's never gonna let you. Know. <laughs> She's always gonna throw that at you. No, okay, but I that is talk like about the, all the best good things that happened. Most normal I year. Hear you. I do. No, I, I see. I see a bowl. Someone's out there probably saying 2020 is a fairy tale of a year. It's his most normal year by far. Yes, that's fine. That's fine. I'll give you that. Was probably six until the very very end, which was pretty tragic but <laughs> oh my god <laughs> especially tragic if your name's tiffany not so tragic <laughs> if your name is megan no i'm kidding <laughs> oh my lord <laughs> megan. all right back to prisoner of azkaban and nightmares so, so i found nightmares. a pretty awesome so article nightmares. um from kelly bulkily.org i think it's like she just, like, writes a journal. I don't know. It was very good and, like, very well thought out and well written. So I copy-pasted a bunch. I'm not going to read everything word for word, but there's a lot of really good points. Um, so in Prisoner of Azkaban, Harry must contend with a new species of wickedness, the Dementors. Um, and the Dementors are, like, I really loved this comparison. Dementors are, like, PTSD demons. And they affect oh. Harry especially badly. So Lupin explains why. Dementors take away everything good inside you, so you'll be left with nothing but the worst experiences of your life. And the worst that has happened to you, Harry, is enough to make anyone fall off their broom. <laughs> Poor 
poor Harry. He's only 13 at this point. Um, So dementor attacks intermingle with Harry's continuing bad dreams. And now he can distinguish in his memory a specific sound. The one of his mother's scream as Voldemort kills her. So at night, Harry dozed fitfully, sinking into dreams full of clammy, rotted hands and petrified pleading, jerking awake to dwell again on his mother's voice. So not only was he hearing his mother's voice actually when there was a Dementor around, he was just continuously dreaming about that moment as well in Nightmares. Um Uh, So as Harry uncovers more about his past, his initial reaction of wonder and delight at the magical world yields to an acutely painful awareness of the family he never knew and will never have. Um, And then, let me see here. This is the night Harry goes to bed after Gryffindor wins a big Quidditch match. He had a very strange dream. He was walking through a forest, his firebolt, over his shoulder, following something silvery white. It was winding its way through the trees ahead, and he could only catch glimpses of it between the leaves. Anxious to catch up to it, he sped up, but as he moved faster, so did his quarry. Harry broke into a run, and ahead he heard hooves gathering speed. Now he was running flat out, and ahead he could hear galloping. Then he turned a corner into a clearing, and... Harry suddenly is awakened by a scream. It's Ron, who says Sirius Black, the notorious outlaw, was just in their dorm room. Everyone says Ron must have been dreaming, but Ron insists it really happened. So this premature ending of the dream, just before an eagerly sought moment of final discovery, resonates with common dreaming experience. It also makes for a dramatic turn of events, one that Harry, Ron, and the others completely misinterpret. They assume Sirius Black is a Voldemort ally trying to kill Harry, Whereas in truth, Sirius is Harry's godfather trying to protect Harry from a different agent of the Dark Lord. Harry's father and Sirius were best friends at Hogwarts, and Sirius turns out to be the mysterious donor of the Firebolt broomstick, which Harry received from an unknown source earlier in the story. So it's just like all of these different, like his dreams are so um, layered. Layered. Yes. So layered. Deep and sweaty. Mm-hmm. Mm. So Harry's well, Patronus. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just thinking, like, that dream, like, um, reminds me of the end of three. And then also um, when Snape sends his Del Patronus in seven for him yeah. to go and get the Sword of Gryffindor. It's like, it works on both those mm-hmm. levels. Dreams are crazy, man. It, 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 also reminds me a, it also reminds me a little bit of the first book when um, he and Draco were in the forest. And yes. they see the, the centaurs. what is it called? The yeah, unicorn? Both the unicorn and the centaurs, oh, yeah. Because, yeah. um, like, this goes on still with this dream, saying, like, also, like, James played Quidditch, adding another layer of masculine paternal meaning to the dream. On top of the fact that Harry's Patronus charm, when fully formed, takes the shape of a stag, the same animal his father was magically able to turn into. Um, and, like, that is potentially the, like, what did they call it? Like, the wisp of silvery white and then it like sounds like hooves like galloping um so it's just like all of these layered meanings stacked together um there is like actually i'm just going to like put the link to this article so that because it like goes on to more than just prisoner of azkaban um 
it like goes through his dreams throughout like we might want to use some of this stuff actually like for like five six seven um it's a really great article so i'll put it like in the show notes for everybody um so that you can go and read this but um when is this one the night before the final quidditch match of the season against the team slytherin harry slept badly and suffered anxious dreams of bizarre misfortunes so this type of dream is familiar to anyone who has tried to sleep while worrying about a big event the next day. Mm. Um, so he dreamed that he overslept and that Wood was yelling, where are you? We had to use Neville instead. <laughs> um, and then he dreamed Malfoy and the rest of the Slytherin team arrived for the match riding dragons. Um, he was flying at breakneck speed, trying to avoid spurt, uh, spurts of flames from Malfoy's dragon's mouth when he realized he'd forgotten his firebolt and he fell through the air and woke with a start. It was a few seconds before Harry remembered that the match hadn't taken place yet and that he was safe in bed and that the Slytherin team definitely wouldn't be allowed to play on dragons. Um, so his anxiety uh, definitely plays into his dreams quite a bit. Mm. And I feel like this kind of adds, honestly, to the whole Harry could be a seer um, idea. Because if you look at the parts of these dreams, right, um, we had to use Neville instead. Uh, the prophecy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, Good connection. It could have been either of them. And then the whole fire and being on a um, a broom and Draco reminds Ooh. me so much of Seven. Yes. Um, Look at maybe you. I'm just making connections, but it does feel these are very, real connections. Yeah, yeah. I mean, J.K. Rowling's known for doing that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if this was intentional, but it definitely there's there there are parallels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely. If you don't know what she's talking about in seven, it's in the room of requirement where the fiend fire um, yes. crab uses fiend fire. Yeah. And uh, that room, holy cow. Who knows if it works still? I, I would hope it would reset. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's sad. That's like centuries of stuff people have like hid. It sucks. All gone because of crap. All gone. And, and he's he also too. gone. <laughs> Not. You could say he's a fire crab. Oh. <laughs> Katie, you know. That's just- I will say in the last chapter <laughs> that we, we were doing, Snape made a comment to Crab, or maybe it was in the last chapter, but I read it while I was doing my notes for it. Uh-huh. And he said something about like you're never gonna like if you do something, I won't I'm not gonna give you like a reference for like a job when you're like oh. done. And I was like, wow. oh, I'm like, I think he's the one that doesn't need a reference. He doesn't. Oh my gosh. He genuinely doesn't. Um So then one of the other just, like, recurring problems for Harry in Prisoner of Azkaban is the constant pressure of Trelawney telling him that he's going to die. Honestly. Which, um, you know, I mean, he already... Which, please. (laughs) He he already feels um, like he has probably a higher chance of that than a lot of his other classmates, and he doesn't need to be reminded of it constantly by a teacher. Um, And that obviously has to put anxiety on him i mean who how could it not um so then we get to goblet of fire and this is when he sees his first death which we know is cedric 
Um, and also throughout the entirety of book four, he's just constantly out of his element. Um, I also think the fact that we begin the book with Harry seeing a death uh, and we end it with him truly being in person and seeing his first death is like a really good roundabout way to write the book. It's like he's never experienced death before. So he starts out with a dream in the beginning um, and sees a muggle die. And then at the end of the book, like one of the last scenes, he sees Cedric die in person. Um so he's just kind of like constantly surrounded by death in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, he also didn't ask to be in the Triwizard Tournament. And being mm-hmm. forced to do it takes a serious mental toll on him. Not only is he completely out of his element with the level of magic that he needs to perform at to do these um, tasks, but... Nobody wants him to do it on top of that. So he is just forced into the situation where, like, he's not wanted and he doesn't want to do it, but he still has to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, and, like, also he's fighting with his best friend for months. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah. having yeah. to go through something so traumatic and then having your best friend not believe you um, and then fighting about it uh, also takes a huge toll on someone. Mm-hmm. And also Ron specifically accusing him of the thing mm-hmm. that he never wants. Is mm-hmm, fake, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. that I don't know how many times, I mean, I, not that I fight with people often, but the worst fights I feel like are the ones where like the other person just isn't understanding you, isn't believing you, like mm-hmm. is questioning your, you know, your worldview, I guess. Um, yeah. Those can be so frustrating. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, plus, like he just, he just wants his best friend to to believe him. I mean, he's telling Ron, I did not put my name in the Goblet of Fire. Like, why would you think that I did? And Ron just, like, doesn't want to hear it. Well, I think with this right now with Ron, he's dealing with his own insecurities and his own issues, and he's letting that affect his relationship with Harry, because at this point in time, he's really realizing, like, um, you know, how they, how different they are, and, like, with the fact that his family doesn't have like a massive amount of money, but like there's also a lot of people in that family where Harry's just himself, you know, and he's probably feeling the pressure of being this kid where like everybody knows his best friend and his sister and his brothers. And then there's just Ron who's just like the sidekick kind of thing. And that's how he's feeling. So he's letting all of those insecurities um, get in the way of his friendship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So The anxiety for Harry is just, like, piling on as the tasks go on. And just like we said, it's it's not even just the tasks. It's a lot of the things that are going on surrounding him, such as not having not having Ron. um, Also, like, not knowing how to figure out some of these clues. Um, Finally, he does get Ron back after the end of the first task but then he has to try and figure out this second task and just oh i don't know he just they are looking through everything and they just cannot find a way and like i can't even imagine that feeling getting it's like the night before (laughs) literally you have hours to figure this out and you have nothing and you're supposed to go and just stand up in front of all of these schools and perform this task and you don't know how to do it right Um, So the night before the second task, 
I just said this. Sorry, I jumped ahead of myself. Um, so then the mermaid in the painting in the prefix bathroom is laughing. Harry was bobbing like a cork in bubbly water next to her rock while she held his firebolt over his head. Wait, is that like a dream? Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Meg's like, I don't remember this happening. <laughs> oh my god, so I wrote these notes nightmares. like two years ago. Okay, so yeah. Um, there is nothing, by the way, worse than falling asleep without an alarm before some big exam or yes. truth, you know, yes. test. That feeling whatever. when you wake up not knowing if you woke up on time or not is like the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that is like what he's dreaming of while he is basically oversleeping for the second task, but he gets there just in time. Um so she's telling him, come and get it. Come on, jump. And Harry's saying, I can't, I can't. And he's struggling not to sink, asking her to give it to him. But she just poked him painfully in the side with the end of the broomstick, laughing at him. Um, but then he's woken up and makes it. Uh, but obviously the biggest part, I think, of four for his mental health is seeing Cedric die at the end. It's just like his first, um, not only is it the first time he's really experiencing death, it's the first time he's seeing somebody who's truly innocent get killed for no reason. Um, and I think that it, that's kind of the moment where he starts to spiral when it comes to PTSD. Um, we really see it throughout five. Um, everyone, you know, this is everyone's least favorite Mopey Harry. We have definite PTSD from seeing Cedric die and getting ignored by Dumbledore throughout this entire book. Um, Umbridge takes over Hogwarts and basically is shoving all idea of learning defense down the toilet. Harry thinks that he is a literal weapon and he cannot sleep over it. Um, He's literally thinking that like he's endangering his friends and family by being around them because he thinks that he can get possessed by Voldemort. So freaking sad to me i know um and then on top of the trauma of seeing in this dream he as himself attacking a father figure mr weasley and then avoiding all of his friends because of it like i just said like he thinks that he's this weapon that he Mm -hmm. can't be around anybody because of it um he's also convinced that they just want nothing to do with him after that because they overhear moody saying mm-hmm. that he is potentially being possessed. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also starts a relationship with Cho. And not only does Harry need serious mental health treatment in Order of the Phoenix, but so does Cho. And it's really just super bad timing for the both of them, I think. Like, neither of them are over Cedric's death in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if they would have worked out. If they had been in better, like, headspaces. Yeah. Mm. They didn't really know each other. It was like a first crush, yeah. you know, where you don't yeah. actually know the yeah. person. You just like the idea of the person. Yeah. I, I feel oh, like, man, let me tell you, I've experienced I it. think they could have helped <laughs> each other, like, if they talked. Because as much as Harry doesn't want to talk about it, like, that would have helped both of them. You know what I mean? And she's not, yeah. she's not going into that being like, I want to hear every detail. It was more like... Let's talk about, like, someone we care about, blah, 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 you know? Mm -hmm. It could have been good. Well, and even, just even understanding Harry's viewpoint, I mean, Mm -hmm. if Cho and Harry had actually maybe talked as friends, maybe they Mm -hmm. they could have helped each other, healed each other a little bit. I mean, yeah. uh, I think she she tried that. She was ready. And let's give her props for that, because she was trying to heal. 
maybe yeah. you know she didn't say it outright, but she needed to talk, and mm-hmm. she she really needed to talk with him. But he doesn't want to talk. He's not there. Who knows if he ever? I, I don't think he ever got there. I I think for him, he's not used to having people to talk to about. You know what I mean? Well, no, like, and he he also thinks like he doesn't want to talk about it. Correct. He wants to forget. What I'm saying, yes. He, what I'm saying is like he's never had someone like sit down and say like let's have a conversation about what's going on. You know what I mean? So he's now 15 at the time. And so for 15 years, I mean, well, first with all the jerseys, like they're just, they're the ones making him have issues. You know, they're the ones that are laughing at him because he's stuck in a tree because a dog is trying to get him. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So he's Mm -hmm. so used to just bottling everything up and not communicating effectively. And so when something like this happens and then everyone stops talking to him because Dumbledore doesn't want him to know anything that summer, it's just compounding on the fact that he's not supposed to talk about it and he doesn't want to talk about it. And he doesn't want to talk about his feelings. Well, and specifically too, Cho might've been, even though Cho would have been the perfect person to talk to Mm -hmm. because they both knew Cedric, Harry has always had a crush on Cho. Mm -hmm. And so he didn't want to talk about her Mm ex-boyfriend. You know, I mean, he doesn't, especially when he feels guilt over that death. Um, there was just, there was too much baggage there already. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. You're right. I feel like for Harry, he just needs, um, he needs someone who he doesn't have to explain his history to, which I think is why he works so well with Ginny because he doesn't, um, I mean like, yeah, of course anybody's going to know like the superficial backstory of Harry Potter, you know, just because he's Harry Potter. But but to actually get it and have somebody that he doesn't need to like make them understand mm-hmm. his anxieties and his PTSD and all of these things that are going on with him. And, and that's why I feel um, Cho never would have, would have worked out. Not, and not even necessarily because he doesn't, I think at, at 15, yeah, he doesn't want to talk about her ex, but even like thinking to the future, um, I just feel like he's not the person that's going to sit down and be like, all right, let me explain to you my life story and why I am the way that I am. You know what I mean? Which is why like, yeah, Ginny well, just works out really well. And I think with Ginny, like we find, or, you know, you, you, you are reminded in six or five, whatever book we're on when she, like they're talking about like Voldemort possessing a, a person. She's like, yeah, I wouldn't know anything about that. So she's been through mm-hmm. a traumatic experience herself with Voldemort. So like, that's another little, yeah, thing they have unfortunately in common. Not a good thing, but yeah. Um, and then obviously, so at the end of four, he sees Cedric die, and now at the end of five, he has the death of his godfather, and really, like I think in Harry's eyes, one of his heroes, um, die, and and he feels responsible for this death as well, just as responsible as he felt for Cedric's. I mean, he let Voldemort manipulate him. He let, he let himself believe that Voldemort had Sirius there. And if Harry had taken occlumency seriously uh, or had had a different teacher and learned it differently and learned it better, uh, this might not have happened. Or remembered that he had that mare. Right. And, um, so obviously this is just another, you know, another another piece to add to 
the puzzle that is Harry and PTSD because I think that it's just never it, it never goes away. I mean, you even see in Cursed Child, he has it still. Yeah. Um. So then moving into Half-Blood Prince, um, he has to deal with the death of Sirius and coming to terms with the fact that he isn't there for him anymore. And Harry finally feel like he has information on something. He doesn't feel as if he's in the dark the whole time. And I think that he grasps onto that, um, you know, like the causing of obsession and paranoia over just this whole situation that he's in, um, taking these lessons from Dumbledore, taking in all of this information, not realizing how little time he's going to have to take all of this in, um, which then like compounds into the death of Dumbledore at the end. And I think that Harry having to learn all of this responsibility that he has in this, like, this massive role that he has in this war um, that really he's the only one that can do and he's 16 is just overwhelming. Um, And then on top of the fact that Dumbledore dies, he now thinks that Snape is the one that turned against everybody and is against him at this point. Um, So he's lost another ally. I'm not saying that he loved having Snape as an ally, but the fact that he truly did think that Mm -hmm. Snape was on his side to have the death of Dumbledore and have to process the fact that Snape is the Death Eater, like, full on, not a spy. This is what I'm thinking. Um, So it's just a lot, obviously. So because of all these things he's learning with Dumbledore, Harry basically feels like he has the entire world on his shoulders and he has to come and accept that he truly is the Chosen One. Um, And this pedals into now Deathly Hollows, which is just, like, basically a bit big old yikes like he has to deal with so many deaths unable Mm -hmm. to even process each trauma as they happen because more just continue to happen um the trio is incredibly isolated for most of this book they're alone um big comparison to like war and how there are long moments of no action too which gets frustrating for ron he doesn't truly understand why Harry doesn't have more direction. I guess he thought that like Harry was withholding information and he was going to learn about it when they actually started going on this Horcrux hunt. Um, And it's very frustrating to him whenever he realizes that Harry was never holding anything back. This is literally all they have. Um, He and both he and Hermione do that. Hermione is a little frustrated too. They, they, they discuss that, you know, behind his back. Yeah. Gets a little dicey out there in the forest. <laughs> um, so, well, and I think everyone had this belief that, you know, Dumbledore had imparted more knowledge. Yeah. Well, and everybody thought that they were closer than they really were. Mm-hmm. I think Harry also thought that. Yeah. Yep. But I think too, like you're. Also he never. Going into a he situation. never realized though. Like yeah. he talks about like how you know they always discussed Harry and Harry's blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And he's like, he never thought to ask him. And it's like, well, yeah, but, but you're, you're also, also being respectful, you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're also putting them in a situation where like they're out of their comfort zone. They're probably not, you know, eating a ton of food that they normally do. Are They're worried. They're all, they're stressed out. So obviously that's putting a lot all of, of them on edge anyway. So plus, you know, it was the Horcrux as Tiffany would say. 
Actually, that's true. It was. <laughs> it technically, it was. Um, so in the beginning-ish of the book, after the whole thing happens at the wedding where they have to actually, like, start their journey now. Um, so Remus comes and visits them at Oof. Grimald Place. And Harry, I think this hits Harry really hard because he feels as if Remus is abandoning Teddy and Tonks. And mm-hmm. um, basically is like, why would you take something away from Teddy that I want so bad? Like, I would kill to have, a, you know, my father with me and you're just going to leave him behind. And neither of them really handle this situation very well, in my opinion. I mean, I do think that Remus deserves everything that Harry said to him. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's still kind of like a, you know, adult like Remus is definitely like an adult figure to him and the way that he talks to him is not very tactful but it does do the job it was a conversation that if you were an outside like person if you you wouldn't believe it was between Harry and Remus like but Harry I mean he did what he said whatever it took Mm -hmm. to shake Remus up which, in reality, he, like, I think oof. that Remus's personality, like, that really is what he needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, maybe deep down, Remus knew that going to Harry would jog him to the would, right place. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. Well, and maybe it's a little bad. bit of changing roles, too. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. we, always, we always see Rem- Remus as, like, the adult, even within the Marauders. He was, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the, like voice of reason, always kind of had his head on his shoulders. Harry's kind of a little bit of a hothead sometimes. Um, But a little. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, this was Harry being an adult Mm -hmm. in a way, I feel. And telling telling Remus exactly where to put it. Um, with his childishness and I know I know that it was him showing his fears of being a father but like Harry's also right like no you need to go and be a dad Harry's had all these things thrust upon him and he's figured out ways to deal with them whether it's a healthy way or not that's beside the point he's 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 dealt with them in his own way and I think that um you know, when you're a kid, what do they say? Don't meet your heroes. Yeah. Um, when you're I a met kid, you, Tiffany, and it was wonderful. <laughs> Girl, <laughs> no, but a lot of the times, like, uh, take your parents for example. Um, you know, you don't ever really know what's going on in their adult lives when you're growing up because mm-hmm. you're a child and you don't understand. And I think that when Harry looked at Remus like that, it was like this isn't you, this is not what you, you do, you know, you're stronger than this and better than this. And so he tore him down Yep, in a mean yeah. girl way. You know what I mean? <laughs> that was Regina George. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, Harry has to deal with that, which is obviously pretty jarring, I think, to start this journey off that way. Um, and then like while they're moving, he he also has a constant worry over the Weasleys and other order members, even though Ron does end up throwing that in his face. Um, I think that Ron, Ron is just a super emotional dude and he wears his heart on his sleeve. Um, And, you know, I like to think that he probably regrets saying that to Harry and 
knows deep down that Harry is also worrying about the Weasleys just as much as Ron is. Um, But obviously that's super stressful because you're so isolated and there's really no way to communicate without being tracked. So you just have to cross your fingers and hope for the best in all honesty. Um, And the fact that he has to find these random objects without being caught and the ministry putting a massive, huge target on his back. He has no idea where to even start with this information. And like, thankfully the combined brain power of the three of them gives them some sort of direction Um, But it still really is like they're shooting into the darkness with this whole process of trying to find the Horcruxes. Um, And the government being... Go ahead. Sorry. sorry. Luckily, I didn't put my hand up. Sorry. But luckily, you know, uh, Voldemort is like a magpie and picks shiny objects. Because, man, if he had picked like a grain of sand, we'd still, we'd all be, you know, what is it? Kyle Voldemort was the, the incursion. Oh my child. god, for Valor Voldemort. day. <laughs> yeah. Valor. Yeah. Yeah, Voldemort and Valor, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jeez. Um Yeah, he's dumb. <laughs> Yeah, he likes he's he very much. We've talked about how he's he loves so show, important. Likes you know to put I mean? on like a show. He, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, insert monologue. <laughs> <laughs> So also in Seven, thinking about like in the very beginning of Seven, how uh, Scrimger comes and basically tries to like recruit Harry to like Mm. help him out at the ministry. But then eventually, you know, realizing, I mean, Harry didn't really have to realize anything. He knew that he was never going to be on the ministry side just because like, look at how they've treated him the Mm -hmm. past how many years before this. Like, why on earth would I help you now? Um, But that also is, again, super isolating because the government is now against him through this whole fight. On top of the fact that Voldemort's taken over the the government, I feel like the government's against Harry even before Voldemort takes it over. And then it's just even worse because now he has, like, you know, a prize on his head if somebody finds him. Um, And then... Sorry, that was really awkward. Long pause. Uh. And then also having to hear Hermione be tortured in Seven has to be incredibly jarring for him and for Ron, um, knowing that there's literally nothing that they can do until there is something they can do, which is great. But in those moments leading up to uh, the point where Dobby shows up to help them, they they really, like, they have, they, they can't do anything to help Hermione. They can't. Uh, Ron can't even like jump in and and like say no, torture me, not her, because they're literally separated from her, and they have no idea what Bellatrix is gonna do. Like, is is Bellatrix going to just torture her, and then they'll see Hermione in a in a few minutes in whatever state Bellatrix leaves her in, or is Bellatrix gonna torture her and then just kill her? Like, they genuinely have no idea. So, like, that fear has to just be insane, crushing. Yes, she's crazy. You don't know what she's gonna do. Yeah. Right. Um, And then last massive thing for Harry, I think, in Seven is having to accept his own death. Um, He has to Mm -hmm. go through all the stages um, of grief, basically. So he goes through denial and isolation, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. And you can see it, it. It honestly, like, 
I feel like it hap- it has to happen so fast for him too um, because he, you know, views these memories from Snape and Voldemort has put a time limit on how long he has to show up before he starts just like murdering people again. And they've already at this point lost um, Fred, I think. And Fred, Remus, Remus Tonks. Tonks. Yeah, like... Colin Creevy. Those are the ones that I know about. You know, so I think that because of those things, because of everything that he's gone through leading up to that moment, he has to go through the five stages, like, honestly, within, like, less than 30 minutes. And Mm -hmm. he does go through those stages rather successfully and come to acceptance, which I think is what makes him such like a great hero character. He realizes pretty quickly and understands and accepts that he is the one that has to die in order for this to work. Um, And he just has to cross his fingers and hope that Ron and Hermione can kill the snake, kill Nagini and finish this um, because he has to go do what he has to do right now. And, you know, thank God they've been on this journey with him the whole time to be able to finish this for him. Well, and I love the way that he confides in Neville, too, because mm-hmm. it's just by happenstance that he he catches him, you know, mm-hmm. helping carry Colin Creevy's body back into the castle to, to lay down. And, you know, he, like, surprises Neville and he just, like, takes off the cloak and is like, listen, he's ensuring that there's still three in on the plan, even though Neville doesn't know everything, obviously. But, he you know, he tells them, like, Ron and Hermione, you know, but kill the snake. And he's like, yeah, kill the snake. And I just, yeah, I like that little bit right there. I actually just finished listening to Deathly Hallows this morning. Oh, I know. It's like a million three read. <laughs> that book just gets more, more and more powerful for me each read. Um, but like it, it is. Yeah. Something about it. It's so fascinating that, or it's so interesting that, Neville is the person he sees then mm-hmm. and there, right? Because yeah. so often they're kind of, it could have been one or the other, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is Harry literally like passing the baton and saying like, hey, like, I know I'm not yeah. going to be here anymore, so please do this last thing. And um, everybody always asks, they're like, do you think Neville would have, you know, been successful, you know, had this been him chosen instead? And I think the actions in Seven should show you, yes. yes. I think Mm -hmm. he would have been successful, but I don't think it would have worked at all because I think the reason that Harry survived with his mother's love is because Voldemort asked her to move aside three times, and the only reason he asked her to move aside three times was because of Snape. Right. That's true. You're right. But not to say, like, I think if Neville was in the same situation, he would have been, yeah, he would have been just as good. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's what his wife tells him you're just as good as harry <laughs> you're all right <laughs> get out of here continue megan i do think that like as we grow older and reread the end of seven specifically like if you've ever experienced grief or had to um had to come to terms with a death or anything like that like that book just becomes that much more powerful Yes. Seven's going to be a trip for me, man. I've only read it one time. 
Get ready. Apparently, Katie. I'm about to blow your mind. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> it's gonna be crazy. It's. Just I mean, I almost cried so several times in this book. So yeah, you when know what is interesting? Actually, sorry to jump, no, but no, something good. that's interesting about the stages of grief is this: the stages, the five stages, are actually meant for you to be accepting your own death. So it is very relevant to Harry because the five stages of grief doesn't really work well for people accepting someone else's death because you're never really going to accept someone Mm -hmm. else's death. You know, you're still around. You're still thinking. You know, you're Mm going to keep waffling through those stages of grief, of denial, of anger, of like, you know, those thoughts are going to make you sad over and over again. But when you're having to accept your own death, you know – Hopefully you get to reach the last stage. But the the idea is that, yes, you flow through them and you do come to accept your own death. And so that's, I mean, it's it's very relevant to Harry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think also, like, the more you reread the series as a whole leading up to Seven, it again, like, makes that last part of the book more powerful because you're like really understanding Harry's arc like the more you get into because honestly um I've said this quite a few times on the podcast but like I kind of before doing before doing Swish I always viewed Harry as kind of like an overrated character I didn't really like him um he just I mean like I know it's kind of silly because like it's Harry Potter but I just like didn't really connect with him I kind of thought that he was annoying I thought that he was too you know, shouty capitals, like all that kind of stuff. But then as you're older and you're rereading the books, you truly can like understand and comprehend why Harry is the way that he is. Um, And like appreciate the changes in him from one all the way to seven. Um. So, like, now, honestly, he's probably one of my favorite characters, which I never would have guessed would happen. Um, But reading it as an adult, I like him so much more. And I think it's just because I understand the things that he goes through so much more. I mean, as a 12-year-old, I'm not going to comprehend half of what I do now when it comes to, uh, you know, like, the stages. I mean, I wasn't 12 when I read Deathly Hallows, but, like you get the point. It's like, I just didn't, I didn't understand it nearly as much as I would now. Um, so moving on to Neville and mental health, poor Neville. Neville. He, <laughs> he has constant, he constantly has to live up to expectations and it seems as if he's always crumbling under those expectations. He's basically being set up for failure and given unattainable expectations by his family because they don't truly, they don't truly like love Neville as level as Neville. I don't think they get on always, his Neville level. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're always just comparing yeah. him to his parents, though, um, which is an unfair thing to do. Um. Because he's a different person than them. But he is fearful constantly because he has anxiety really due to the expectations that are put on him. Um, So on top of that, fear and anxiety as well make you forgetful. Um, Which, you know, we know that Neville's forgetful. His grandmother gives him a rememberal. 
Um, and he can't even remember what he forgets whenever he gets the remember all, which, oh my God, that's my life. If, you know, nobody else in this book. Um, I feel like out of most of these characters, though, Neville has the best glow up. Like, he really hits a stride. He grows into his role in the series. <laughs> Are you laughing at glow up? <laughs> I am. I mean, he does figuratively and literally, at least in the movies, have quite the glow up. <laughs> I mean, I think he's a very attractive man. He is. Um, he has to deal with the fact that his parents are mentally insane and what that means growing up to him as well. So I think having to deal with that, having to deal with the expectations, to have it kind of come full circle and have him really be the final reason as to why Voldemort can be defeated is pretty amazing. Pretty Bob's apron. Pretty Bob's apron. Um, <laughs> next up is good old. Sirius. It's like saying your Bob's apron is pretty. Bob's apron's very pretty. <laughs> uh, so Sirius goes into Azkaban pretty young, which is why when he comes out, he's still basically acts like a reckless 20 year old we've talked about this a lot on the pod and in his character profile um going to Azkaban kind of just like stunts his growing up um the effect uh, also of being a dog for so long because I believe correct me if I'm wrong but I believe that he is a dog quite often in Azkaban because it. Uh, makes the Dementors not affect him as much. Yeah, they don't care about animals. They care about human souls. Um, So then on top of that, he has the effect of the long-term guilt because he feels as if it's his fault that Lily and James get killed um, because he backed out of being their secret keeper and suggested Peter, uh, not knowing, obviously, that Peter was a jerk. Um, so the trauma of being in jail for so long. And then on top of that, he finally gets out of jail and then he gets trapped in Grimald place. Um, I feel as if he deals with PTSD in the sense that he can't really escape his jailing. Uh, he also grapples a lot with Harry versus James, like the painful reminder constantly of James being gone. Um, and also confusing sometimes Harry for James in the sense that he treats Harry as if he is James and not a child. Um, not that I think that, like, and, and it's, we actually kind of just had this conversation in the regular podcast, if you're listening to this in real time, where um, we talk about, like, the the difference between, like, Sirius versus Molly in terms of parenting and, like, finding that middle ground. Um, because, you know, Harry is deserved some information whereas molly wants to withhold like a ton of information Sirius is like no he should know some and at times i feel like he probably pushes too much because again he's comparing him to james um and that always he wants james to or he wants not james he wants harry to be as reckless as james yes would have been at that age yeah yeah for sure um and he has a hard time he has a hard time realizing that while yes harry definitely does have some of his dad's recklessness it's not nearly as much he forgets that he does have some lily in him as well yeah, um a totally, totally different life experience too mhm yeah definitely yeah. definitely 
Uh, because Harry doesn't even, unfortunately, know James. Or even get a childhood, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Sirius also causes him, to, that also causes Sirius to not always give Harry the best advice, just as I said. And then Sirius being surrounded by Dementors all the time, definitely. I think even though he did learn coping mechanisms with being a dog, I mean, that had, effect, had an effect on him too. But like being around Dementors that much definitely had to have given him depression or anxiety, I would think. And again, there's nobody really for Sirius to go and talk to about it because who's he surrounded by all the time at Grimald place. It's going to be Molly probably pretty often who really is not a fan of Sirius. And I highly doubt Sirius would feel comfortable talking to her about anything like that because she still kind of just views him as a reckless 20 year old. Um, so Sirius has definite PTSD and depression and anxiety, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we have Remus and Katie touched on this a little bit with like the whole, um, lycanthropy, but Remus is definitely viewed as an outcast, uh, being a monster on the inside. He even calls himself a monster. So definitely like that self-depreciating, um, personality, uh, because of who he is and who society says that he is, is definitely affecting him. I kind of almost view something like that. Like the fact that he has this self, self, did I say it right? The first time self, self deprecating. Yes. Self deprecating personality. Um, kind of reminds me of possibly like, uh, anorexia, but like in, in a very different, like in a different way. It's not, I mean, Remus is unhappy in his own skin. Yes, body dysmorphia. That's what I was going for. Thank you, Caitlin, in the in the Discord chat. Um, he definitely has body dysmorphia, I would think, because even though um, he has scars and he, you know, looks older than he is, I'm sure that lycanthropy plays a role in that. It has to, like, with the amount of times that he's had to physically change over the years because he couldn't afford the Wolfsbane potion um, or just, like, didn't have access to it. Um, I'm sure that that ages him, but he himself constantly calls himself a monster, constantly says that he has a monster inside of him, all of these things, which is not um, good behavior, I would not say. Um, Love yourself is my message, Mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, like society definitely shoves those thoughts on him. Right. Um, So it's a little bit harder a little bit harder for him so um success despite the cards being stacked against him so remus does have remus does have some success but he also doesn't believe that he deserves it which is another uh, mm-hmm. which is another aspect of you know he feels that he deserves the, the worst because of who he is and who society says that he is he doesn't believe that he deserves to be a teacher or he deserves the opportunities that Dumbledore has handed him or any of those things or to be a father yes or to be a father um which you know leads to the scene in Deathly Hollows with Harry and getting screamed at yes yeah. um and just like dealing with a sickness and what that means with society, like being disabled and the odds are being stacked against you and all things. And I think that in 2020, 
um, this has come to light so much this year with like how society really does not handle disabilities very well um, in terms of, you know, why was it okay in 2020 to suddenly be able to figure out working from home and figuring out doing school from home when everybody in society couldn't do it. But when there's a small portion of society that really can't do it because of their disability, nobody wants to work to make that available. Um, And I think that that has really been shown this year, that there is clear... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Disparities? Yeah, there's clear disparities in society. and, And I hope that the fact that these came to light in 2020 they stick. Um, I don't know if I have faith that they will, but that just, you know, it gives, it gives people with disabilities the, um, like just proof that the fight is there and that clearly there is ways for people to work around and help disabilities like disabled people, um, in society. And I hope that these options, um, stay available. So um Mad Eye Moody is pretty straightforward. I think he's got straight up PTSD yeah. from being uh an or paranoia. Um which I think potentially are effects of just like being FBI or something along those lines. Like always being hunted, always having to watch your back. Um as he says, his hypervigilance, constant vigilance. Um and I think that that is really just like the system, you know, I mean, like he's an or that is what the system is. Uh, and clearly something needs to happen there that isn't so because I'm sure he's not the only or that wound up this way. It's just that he's like way, way, way on the other end of the spectrum when it comes to it. Yeah. He's like also only one of the few ors we know that like reached an older age. <laughs> True. True. Yeah, all yeah. the ors are young. All mm-hmm. the other ones are young or gone. Or died young. Yeah. 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 So. Um, I don't know much about schizophrenia, but one thing that I remember from school is like always believing like – not always. I don't know. But I saw an example of someone who had schizophrenia and they were very paranoid thinking that like the government was after them and things were being like tapped and stuff. So that also makes me think um, a little bit of Mad Eye as well. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a possibility, you know? Yeah. The the paranoia, I mean, paranoia usually like parallels schizophrenia sometimes. Right. Is that like a thing? I don't well, know. it's it's a symptom of both illnesses. So okay. PTSD, yeah. symptom of PTSD is paranoia of um, like hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a symptom of schizophrenia is paranoia as well. Um, and like grandiose thoughts, like people mm-hmm. are spying mm-hmm. on you, people mm-hmm. are, yeah. you know, watching you, things like that. So there yeah. is definitely overlap. Mm-hmm. Um in both of those illnesses. Interesting. Um, next up is Draco. Yes. Oh, something just rewinding to Mad Eye really quick. I wanted to say too, is that, um, reality does feed into your illness though, because I mean, 
he did have a reason to be Mm -hmm, constantly Mm -hmm. vigilant. Um, So it can feed into your mental illness. That reality is paralleling the situation. I mean, poor Mad Eyes had to live through multiple wars and then died in the last war. So, um, you know, it did serve him well to be constantly vigilant. And so even though he seemed kind of overly paranoid to some people in times of peace, in times of war, it served him well. Mm-hmm. True. Yeah. Um, so with Draco, I think that I, you know, the, the cult mentality that Draco lives in of being the son of a death eater clearly um, majorly affects him. I think that a lot of Draco's issues are, um, like the nurture side of nature versus nurture. Like he, he's definitely, um, groomed to be the person that he becomes, um, real world application today of racism, like how racism affects mental health on both the oppressor and the oppressed. Um, and I think that Draco is an example of that, such as like how, Lucius is one of the oppressors of racism, um, but not only not only is he affecting the people he is being racist towards, but he's also affecting Draco by teaching him these things. And um, I, I, you know, it's it's just that. I truly, I truly think that, I mean, we see it, that Draco becomes a different person, you know, not completely, but he's definitely a better person in Cursed Child. And I think that that's because he backs away from his family. He Mm -hmm. meets somebody who has different ideals than his family does. And um, he becomes a better person. So to me, that, that makes me think that he never truly believed all of those things. It was kind of just like, that I need to please my family. Survivor mentality. Well, so, yeah. I, like, also, I, I I think he I think grew he, out of it. Correct. Yeah, I think he believed because really we've talked about the fact that like racism is taught. So once he comes to school, mm-hmm. he's been living with that mm-hmm. in the back of his head for eleven years, and now he's mm-hmm. meeting people that aren't like him, that aren't pure blood. Go. And I think that until he maybe in the, when sixth year came around and he really was like seeing what was happening um, and really got into it and really like having been taught for so long that like pure bloods are better and you're doing all of this and whatever else. And like, you know, Muggleborns are stealing magic and they're not as good. And then having someone like Hermione come in where she's working her tail off and proving like, I'm smarter than you. Like I, and Harry like is able to do all this magic and they're both kind of besting him in a lot of ways. And neither one of them are purebloods. Neither one of them grew up with this, regardless if Harry is a half blood or not. He grew up as a muggle. Um, and I think that was like maybe his first instance of seeing like, Oh, well, I'm just going to double down on the fact that like I ha- I am better than you anyways mm-hmm. because I have pure blood. And then realizing 6 and 7 and onwards like he's that what he came to believe is not true. Yeah. Well, and I don't I don't think it helped too that like I mean that the sorting system has its pluses in that it's nice mm-hmm. to be in a house with other like-minded individuals, but it also mm-hmm just reinforced his 
mentality and the mentality he grew up in because mm-hmm. of all of the people he made friends with and was trying to please and was trying to, you know, you know, live up to were all within his house. And mm-hmm. so I really, it's something that I'm very disappointed in that at the end of the seventh book, there were really no Slytherins except for Snape and sort of Draco, not really, that kind of weren't 100% like, let's kill all mudbloods. You know what I mean? Mm. Slughorn was there. Then Don't forget Slughorn. about him. I know, you're right. I should not, <laughs> I should not forget about Slughorn. Um, yeah. But I really, I really wish that Draco had had a, a, a different arc. Mm in the storyline just because when I was growing up with, with these books, um, I think I had mentioned in the first one that like I had read a lot of fan fiction between books four and five. Um, and I, I've always liked kind of morally ambiguous characters. And so I always hoped for kind of more of like a redemption arc Mm -hmm. for Draco. And he really didn't get it. Um, he does like the slightest bit. But it's like it could have been so much more. It could have been so much more. Um, And I mean, he is a morally weak person. He doesn't really, he doesn't really want to help Harry or Hermione. He just doesn't want to see Mm -hmm. them killed, basically. Mm -hmm. Like that's the extent of his goodness in um, the last, you know, in in Deathly Hallows. Um, You see more of that arc in Cursed Child. Um, mm-hmm. But... Well, at the very end, in the epilogue, they see... Um, I, I think they do this again, obviously, in Cursed Child, because that's where it begins. But, like, since I just finished it, they look at each other, and they do the, the nod. <laughs> and, that, and that's when I think you get in your mind, oh, so they're like okay-ish <laughs> well and he talks about his wife and how like she didn't believe in any of that stuff shout out to her and, like wish we knew neither her. one of like they didn't he didn't care that like his parents didn't approve even though she herself was pure blood because she didn't believe in any of that well and it, it helps too that his son scorpius um mm. it, his only friends really are um albus and mm-hmm. Rose and that the rest of wizarding society kind of really looks down on him, his son. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, Mm -hmm. if my child was being shunned by most of wizarding society, I probably would be more accepting of his friends that do care about him, even if they are the son of like the guy I used to hate. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Draco is really accepting of Albus though, isn't he? I don't remember, I mean, to be honest. He like he basically like goes to Harry and says, please let Albus hang out with Scorpius. Like, mm-hmm. it's his only mm-hmm. friend. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Draco, I, I like, I feel like Draco's, Draco's redemption arc kind of doesn't really complete until Cursed Child. And I think that yeah. it, it's a lot better if you include Cursed Child in his story. Mm-hmm. Um because, yeah, like, by the end of seven, like, yes, I-, I think that, like, when six comes around, that is when Draco, I think, starts realizing that he is a part of a cult. 
it's like that realization, like, hold on. I know that, like, I was being fed all of this information and I believed it up until this point, but, like, acting on it is different. Mm-hmm. And, well, like, just being a part of something and, like, I'm the son of Lucius Malfoy and this is what my dad has done, blah, blah, well, blah. He was being, he so was being used. The intention for was sure. for Draco to die. Correct. And I think percent. for... I think yeah. for Draco, like, not only is it, like, so he's grown up with this, and now he's seeing his dad's in jail, he's seeing all these things happen, and now he's, like, really in the thick of it, but he's also having to deal with the fact that, like, the man that he has grown to look up to his entire life, his dad, he's, like, truly turning out to be, he's seeing who, him for who he really is, mm-hmm. and, like... He no longer has power. He no he's longer getting has the, power. He's getting he, the tar beat out of him at his own house. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And 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 just having like those thoughts of what he's doing is wrong. He really, we see, does not have the stomach to kill anybody or watch anybody get killed. He would have flipped sides at the end of six if he was given a couple more minutes. I agree. And I think that for him, it's just a jarring situation to be in because everything he's ever learned from his parents is he's now realizing like, this isn't right. And Correct. it's not, and so he, he also doesn't know what to do. He still goes in seven though with crab and Goyle. Uh, yeah. I he think, still doesn't quite learn his lesson. And I think part even of it at is that like last preservation. You know what I mean? Like that's a big part for them. I also think that crab and Goyle had a lot, their mentality changed in that seventh year. They were mm. more, uh, they, they stood up more, um, to Draco. Cause, even uh, Crab or Goyle, I can't remember which one, says, we don't take orders from you anymore. You and your father are finished. And so I think maybe Draco may have been influenced by them to go and seek Harry out to be the ones to, like, bring him in or whatever. You know what I mean? <clears throat> um, so that that could also be the case with, with Draco there as well. He lost his power as his father did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. I also really like this point about Draco to just to kind of like help put yourself in his shoes. So like haven't each and every one of us been uncomfortable in a situation but didn't necessarily speak up about it? Like at work, when your job was at risk, when someone has a drink and drives, when you feel nervous in a quote sketchy neighborhood, we're all at risk of this kind of morally weak behavior. It just seems so obvious to us as outsiders looking into the Potter universe. And this can be so hard. Um, like I just compare this to um, the last few months with like Black Lives Matter, etc. Like really teaching yourself to be anti-racist and not just say well I'm not racist being an Mm anti-racist is completely different because it's it's actively speaking out about it actively um actively putting yourself in uncomfortable situations and calling people out who you may not have called out in the past those types of situations like Draco's constantly in that situation come six and seven um I think that he just is morally weak. He, and I, and I think at times this is a downfall for Slytherins um, because when it comes to situations, a lot of times, and obviously this is not every single Slytherin, this is very generalizing, but with, with Slytherin, Slytherin's personalities, um, you have usually, the want of self-preservation 
So when it comes to these situations, you just kind of want to be like, well, am I good? I'm good. Okay, I'm out, you know, and like not really go any further in the situation and um, take those next steps to like ensure that like what you're doing is morally the correct thing. Um, And Draco just really struggles with that. And I think that that's just like a personality trait of his. And on top of the fact that his father is constantly telling him he's not good enough leading up to like him becoming a death eater. He's constantly like comparing him to Hermione. He rubs it in his face whenever Hermione does better than he does. Um, He rubs it in his face when Harry does better than he does because, um, you know, Harry is a half blood and Draco should be doing better than all of them, et cetera, et cetera. And, and Draco has, kind of similar to Neville, these like unrealistic expectations that he has to live up to with his father um, Mm -hmm. that is really just not fair to him. And then he's given this opportunity in, um, I don't think immediately Draco knows that this opportunity is a setup for failure for him. He kind of, they're going to play it to him. Yeah. Yeah. He views this as like, oh wow, I'm being asked to be a part of this. And Yes, this, proud. Is, this is my chance to make my dad proud. This is my chance to live up to his expectations. Um, but he truly doesn't believe in what he needs to do when it comes time to do it. He's forced mm-hmm. to do things he doesn't want to do. Um, well, and um, something too, I've read a lot of stories that kind of criticize the housing system within Hogwarts mm-hmm. because it's kind of like an echo chamber you know, yeah. you get you get together with a bunch of like-minded people and that's all you, you know, that's that's the group you're with day in and day out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it really emphasizes those features of your your personality. And like Harry, Harry could have gone either way. He could have gone Slytherin. He could have gone Gryffindor. But he's truly a Gryffindor by the last book because yeah. that's the echo chamber he's been within that's that's the environment that has been you know the he's been nurtured within and mm-hmm. so it's kind of the same with draco in that you know he's just surrounded by this echo chamber of people telling him he better be better than these other people he better be you know uh self preservation blah 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 and that's kind of why I mean, it's it's in line with his character that he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't want to like, he doesn't like, you know, so-called mudbloods or whatever, but he doesn't necessarily want to kill them. Yeah, It doesn't make right. him even a, a better character that he doesn't want to kill them. Yeah. It's just, it just makes him human that he doesn't want to kill them. Yeah. I'm literally all for a healthy competition. I feel like, maybe that's the Gryffindor in me saying that, but I... I feel driven by that, but when you bring up the point about the echo chambers, is you're completely correct. So here's what I think that they should do. Are you ready? Sort them all into the houses, and then somebody yells, Remix! And then they all have oh. to be switched to be together in certain houses. <laughs> but it teaches you to like, like, be with other Problem people. solved. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that their, like, small attempt at that is the fact that they, like, alternate in classes together. Um, but, like, even so, I mean, you're going to stick yeah. with who your friends are and you're going to just, like, and clump together. who you're going to friends with naturally. Right. But I house. think that that's their kind of, like, lame attempt to do something like that and be like, okay, well, you're going to have class with the Hufflepuffs for this class and you guys are going to have class with the Ravenclaws for this one and whatever. 
but it doesn't really do a whole much. It would be kind of cool if there really was just like, uh, like one big common room area. Yeah. Everybody's Hufflepuff. (laughs) (laughs) Or if they just straight up mixed classes, not just, you know, two houses, put a little bit of all of them Yeah, it's literally just like, yeah. Yeah. Not all the Gryffindors are going to be in this class. Only like five of you are, but then five are going to be in this one and it's going to like really spread them out, you know? Yeah. Like Dumbledore's army. That was like one of the first times we really saw mixing of houses. Right. Yeah. Was Dumbledore's army. Um, There's Harry being the greatest teacher on the planet. Yeah. (laughs) Seriously. Um, So next up is good old Severus, my favorite teacher. You love him. You love him. So it is what it is. (laughs) Dumbledore. Um, I feel as if we like go super in depth about Snape on our Felix Files with his character, so I'm not gonna like just mention your bullet points. But like information, see our published work, right? (laughs) (laughs) But like we we kind of have talked to death about what his problems are, and he has a lot. So. He has a strict moral code, which, like, that's not really a problem at all. Like, some, you know, a lot of teachers do, but... Um, I try too hard. <laughs> it's something <laughs> It's something to mention. Um, he also is playing a role. He not only has to, um, you know, he. I mean, he's a spy. That's, like, so yeah. involved. So not only mm-hmm. does he have to make it look to the kids in his classes whose parents are death eaters that he's on their side mm-hmm. while also still reporting back to Dumbledore. He also has to be able to stand in front of Voldemort and block his mind of a lot mm-hmm. of truths, which is incredibly taxing and difficult. Um, and that has to be like massive stress on his mind. I'm, I can't even I can't even comprehend that stress like that would just Megan would not be good if she had to do something like that. I would not I would not fare well. Um, (laughs) But he's a very damaged adult and he does take his anger out on the children. um, And we talk back to like the reason why he's so damaged probably is due to abuse as a child. Um, We do know that like his father was not a good father um, and his mom didn't really stand up to his dad at all. So he had to deal with that a lot on top of the hurt that he has over his loss of Lily and feeling as if um, potentially it's his fault that that even happened Um, and unrequited love, or as I put in quotations, obsession, I don't really know if it's unrequited Put love. Put them in parentheses. Or... Yeah, whatever. You know what I mean. <laughs> the teacher. Um, and also his hatred of James and just how he like takes that hatred out on Harry purely because A, he looks like James and B, his eyes are a reminder of Lily on a daily basis, which has oh, I like. to be. <laughs> yeah. Lily. Um, so that's Snape. He is damaged. Damaged, damaged. He um, needed some serious therapy. He really did. But, all like, Snape needed it bad. But really, yeah, like, everybody I've talked about needed it pretty bad. <laughs> so, Voldemort, 
yeah, we could probably talk about Voldemort for hours, but like clear obsession with power. He uses his magic as power over children at the orphanage. So like even before he's of Hogwarts age, he's learning how to manipulate magic <sighs> and use it um, for power. He doesn't really have a childhood, which could potentially be the effects of growing up in an orphanage, especially back in those times where he was in an orphanage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the effect of him being a loveless child, he's conceived under a love potion. Um, magically speaking, does this affect him? Possibly. It could. We don't really know what the effects of a love potion are because it's not really talked about very much, but it literally could be like a magical effect, not necessarily just because he's not conceived out of love, but because it was literally with a love potion. Um, Mm -hmm. He has no moral code. He's hedonistic, narcissistic, a psychopath, self-indulgent. Everything he does, he does for himself and his own agenda. Um, I just keep picturing the Voldemort from Puffs and like hearing him say things and I just can't. Like what? Uh, just the way that that guy speaks. <laughs> He's really funny. Do you ever Ex- think for myself and my agenda? You know? <laughs> High and cold voice. <laughs> <laughs> um, he also uses his obsession with being with pure blood to his advantage, even though he's not a pure blood, which is a whole other thing. So it's it's kind of similar to like Umbridge where he Ugh. has to like fake this I mean he doesn't he doesn't even have to fake it because people don't even question him about his blood status like who would dare yeah but they should because he's not a pure blood um, I dare I dare uh, and then the mental effect of splitting his literal soul um, so literally the phrase you have no soul kind of it's pretty literal with Voldemort like his soul is <laughs> The Explain it to fraction. me like spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> no, like yeah. tomato sauce, Tiffany. Tomato I'm sorry, sauce. whatever. You're throwing in another ingredient. There's no can't There's do that. a lot of water in that sauce <laughs> and not a lot of tomato. I'll tell basically. you what, there's no chunky tomatoes in there. No, no. No fire. It's all sauce. It's been pureed. Lots of pureed. <laughs> Um, So his soul is so small that possibly his moral code is out of whack because of it. Though I think in order to split your soul, you probably already have no moral code. Um, But just Mm. imagine that like divvied up seven times. Um, He does like, because I do feel like he gets more evil as time goes on. I mean, like if, not that he doesn't do evil things like even thinking back to sorcerer's stone like yeah he slays a unicorn which is like a horrible thing to do but then like leading all the way up to deathly hollows where he literally slaughters like an entire room of goblins mm-hmm. with no questions asked just yeah i mean i think he does get worse as time goes on especially as well because he's realizing also that he's losing so it's kind of this like um, fear yeah it's fear overtaking his evil on top of it and like those two clashing are just super bad on top of the fact that as he's going with splitting his soul he's losing physical features of his body and this is one thing that i really do love about how they portray him in the movies how you can literally see like he is breaking as deathly hollows goes on 
Like he looks sickly as time goes on. You can see literal like cracks like in his head and he just like is not the same as he was in the beginning because the parts of his soul are literally getting destroyed as time goes on. Um, And I just really like how they show that. So then my last point, I know I've been talking for a long time, but Cursed Child. So um, Albus and Scorpius, they both have lots of issues. Scorpius. Let's talk about them. First of all, they should be together. Second of all. Hands down. Um, So Albus struggles with living up to his dad's image. He wants to change the past to almost like fix his dad's mistake. Um, And I think he focused on this mistake Mm -hmm. because it almost makes his dad not so perfect. Mm. Um, Because like before, like leading up to him discovering this, you know, issue with his dad's past, um, it almost makes him cope with the idea of living up to his father because he's like, oh, maybe dad's not so perfect. Look at this Mm -hmm. mistake that he made. I'm going to try and fix it. And then maybe that will make me live up to him because I fixed his mistake. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then Scorpius, uh, he basically has the shadow of family's past, which reminds me a lot of Sirius. Mm. Mm-hmm. He has to deal with the fact that everyone thinks that he's the son of Voldemort. Um, and like mentally, what does that do to someone? First of all, <sighs> Scorpius has to know, I would assume draco's experience with voldemort because of the fact that he's known as the son of voldemort i'm sure they've had these conversations Mm -hmm. and like who voldemort truly is and what that means and all of those things so like mentally having to deal with the fact that people call you the son of voldemort and you know what voldemort did in the past and you also know that you're not that person has to be so stressful on him um, so yeah. he just really wants to distance distance himself from his family's past, but he can't. The people will not let him distance it. Um, I love Scorpius. So Me do too. I. So like, do what I. a precious little soul. Yeah. Who has a complete one? I yes. know, right? Um, <laughs> Scorpius kind of reminds me actually a lot of Harry in a lot of mm. ways because just in personality sometimes because I feel like. Harry was always having to prove that he wasn't bad or wrong somehow to his, to the Dursleys, right? The Dursleys, like, always thought he was, um, you know, the bottom of the totem pole in the family, right? Um, And so he was always having to prove that he was good. And Mm -hmm. I feel like Scorpius does a lot of that, too, is always, like, trying to be the good guy, is always trying to be, like good somehow to prove that he's good yeah yeah it's a weird comparison because they're very different (laughs) but i don't know scorpius is just a cutie yeah he really is um i like the Vinny compares albus to ron which i like as well because ron kind of grows up in the shadow of his family a lot Mm -hmm. um and of harry and of harry yeah Mm -hmm. And I feel like Scorpius and Albus in that sense, uh, they kind of both grow up in the shadow of their families, you know? I mean, like, Albus 
feels like he has to live up to his dad and to him he feels like it's a shadow even though it doesn't have to be and like James handles it so well and he doesn't care and like Lily just seems like she's just off in her own little world like doesn't bother her either but then Albus on top of the fact that like he has to live up to his dad he's then sorted into Slytherin and he just feels completely out just completely out of um like like, he just can't live up to his dad at that point, you know? It's like he, like, feels mm-hmm. like he needs to, and then he goes to Hogwarts, and he gets sorted into Slytherin, and he's like, well, there goes that. Like, I'm not going to live up to my dad now, you know? Like, he feels like there's nothing he can do to overcome the fact that he got sorted into Slytherin. Until right. he becomes friends with Scorpius, and then Scorpius has similar issues, and I just love them. <laughs> Alice is so middle child. He's so mm, typically middle sure. child. I mean, Marsha, 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 right? Like, <laughs> some people are going, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> the Brady Bunch. People. The Brady Bunch. Come the on. The Brady Bunch. Um, the Brady Bunch. And even though Ron isn't the mini, mi- middle child, he kind of acts like the middle child sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, what is it called? Uh, um, Fred and George have each other. Percy doesn't mm-hmm. really have anyone. Uh, the older siblings in Albus's family had, or not Albus, um, in Ron's family had each other. Um, and then Jenny was the girl. Yeah. So Ron kind of, I don't know. And I think for him, he also is like, all of his brothers have done like great things. You know, head boy, Quidditch dude. <laughs> Quidditch dude. Captain. Quidditch dude. Then you have Percy that's doing all these things. And then Friend and George are so talented with their um, wizarding things that they're doing. What is wrong with me? I don't know. And they open their store. And then there's Ginny. And Ron has great things about him, too. He just can't see them. And Mm -hmm. Ginny, besides being the only girl, also is talented herself. So for Ron, he's like, I can't live up to all of these people. And then they're, you know, and my best friend's Harry Potter. Like, <laughs> Although someone on the chat, on the Discord chat, actually said it perfectly. Caitlin said Percy actually has middle child syndrome mm. the worst. And actually, Percy and Albus, unfortunately, kind of have a lot in common in that they kind of go against their family for a mm-hmm. while. Um, it's tough being the middle child. You are right. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I'm the baby, so I'm the perfect person. Same. Yeah. Same. Yeah. I mean, born in in April, you know, it's the best month. Hello. We're just the greatest. My name is amazing. That's why we're the best people on the podcast. Don't ask anyone else. (laughs) Don't ask anyone else. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. Well, this concludes part two. And guess what? There's a third. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's so magical we have so much to say hey remember when we thought this was one episode and then it turned yeah. into two and then three well and, and i said i'm like there's a lot to talk about i'm like we should probably do two episodes and then we did the first one and you're like oh wait oh, we talked a lot we talked for two and a half <laughs> hours Switch um, and flick talked a lot one part yeah so um once again vanessa thank you yes thank you thank um, you this has been wonderful um i feel like this episode was a marathon this was a marathon. Yeah. It was. So thank and you, you know for what? Running that I feel thing. like I need to go drink a lot of water because I talked a lot. Well, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how I felt in my first part. It's like, well, we didn't really talk a lot. It's like a lot of it's information and you have to just kind of think about it, you know? Yeah. Take it in. 
and really listen. But yeah, so this is so great. We'll we'll just do a third episode, and Vanessa and Sarah are gonna. Well, and the third one's gonna be on one. Vanessa's podcast. Yes. Yes. So go to Don't Call Me Crazy podcast. That's where it's gonna be. Yep. Go follow, subscribe, and we will. We'll remind you. Don't worry. We yeah. will remind you. Okay. That concludes this bonus episode. Thank you so much for listening, and don't let the muggles get you down. <laughs>